Bitcoin has to surpass gold. It's a better asset. All around, it's just a superior asset that accomplishes mostly the same thing. Hi there, this is Laurent. I'm the co-host of Verified, the brand new podcast by Bitcoin Suisse. But this isn't just any podcast. It's your backstage pass into the crypto world. My co-host Dominic and I are analysts in the crypto industry, where it is our job to stay on top of the latest market and crypto developments. None of the discuss is financial advice, of course. It's all for informational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome to the first episode of the new Verified podcast of Bitcoin Swiss. We are today thrilled to welcome Alex Kruger as our very first guest. Alex is a notorious economist, investor, an advisor, a trader, and overall a leading voice in the domain of digital assets. Alex's reputation builds on his sharp analysis and insights into global macroeconomic trends and crypto markets, as well as their evolving landscape. So welcome, Alex, and uh, thank you for taking the time to be with us. It's a pleasure to have you here. Maybe just to kick off, will you share a little bit about yourself? Economist, investor, advisor, trader. Did we miss anything? Uh, no, thank you, guys. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm basically all over the place. Um, I started my career about uh, 25 years ago in banking, did 15 years of uh, TradFi, basically between banking, worked as an economist at the Ministry of Economics of Argentina, I'm Argentine. And about uh, 10 years ago, I went independent and I've been basically trading full-time for the last uh, 10 years. For parts of that, it was my capital and, and other people's money, OPM as we call it. And eventually at some mm -hmm. point, I decided that it was not worth it. And uh, went fully independent. I got into Bitcoin in 2013. For the last 10 years, I started as a global macro trader and a little bit Bitcoin on the side. And with the passing of time, these two things started flipping. And eventually found myself uh, turned into what we call a full crypto degen. Um, I use macro a lot for basically influencing my decision making also. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of experience trading very short time frames, uh, but even though uh, at present I focus mostly on, on, on the bigger picture, through the passing of time and age, I moved out in time frames. And uh, what else? I also have uh, a few businesses. Uh, I have a macro research firm. I help crypto projects go to market. So we call the crypto advisory, basically, I mean, the whole, the, the whole spectrum. Yeah. Very impressive, Alex, that you're like, as you said, like all over the place and kind of a generalist, which can be tough in such a highly dynamic space, right? So regarding the topics, I would like to kick off today's episode by diving into spot ETFs and their impact. So as you know, after more than a decade now of back and forth, the ETFs were finally approved, Alex, um, and many in our industry consider this to be somewhat of a, a moon landing moment, right, for the space. Just to throw some numbers at you, BlackRock's IBIT took out the entire assets under management of Canadian Bitcoin ETFs within less than two weeks, which is very impressive in my opinion. Then again, less than three weeks, the nine new kids on the block stockpiled more than 150k in BTC. And overall, we are talking about like 1 billion in inflows now positive. Do you expect more severe sell pressure short term stemming from GBTC as it still holds like 500,000 or half a million in BTC? And what do you generally derive 
from the flows we observed. Is it surprising to you or was it somewhat uh, expected? Yeah, uh, the, the first thing I'd like to say here is that the ETF is as big as, you know, crypto fans and, and, and all of us cheering for it uh, believe mm -hmm. it to be. This is not a fad. Uh, this is what propelled gold to what it is right now. And uh, if we think about it, there is two major things, two milestones in Bitcoin's history in, in its entirety. And these are and have always been basically first an ETF. Why an ETF? Because an ETF basically means that traditional finance is finally shilling for us, as we say it. They're shilling, they're doing our job, and they're pitching to their people for us. That's how the masses come into Bitcoin. And uh, this also brings large asset allocators, which have a very different behavior in markets. As large asset allocators like pension funds, what they do mostly and generally is accumulate, manage risk a little bit, but mostly they're, they're accumulators. They're not mm -hmm. traders, not funds. They don't come in and out like most of us. It's like most people in crypto, hodlers aside, we are hot money. Uh, it's mm -hmm. like the kind of money that basically goes into emerging markets, mm -hmm. that goes briefly into the market following a narrative, this, it, and then comes out rapidly. Uh, this can generate very large um, boom and bust cycles in emerging markets. And in a way, if you think about it, crypto and Bitcoin, has been behaving since its inception very similarly to emerging markets. So what an ETF does is it starts breaking this dynamic and making it more like developed markets where basically money just stays in forever. So that's the first milestone is ETF and it's very important. And then the second milestone is basically central bankers doing the same. So we have TradFi shilling a Bitcoin Secondly, it's going to be central banks shilling Bitcoin. Once central banks adopt Bitcoin as reserve currency, which I, I firmly believe now it will happen. And that, that was not the case, by the way, uh, a few years ago. I, I changed my mind. So uh, the first milestone is behind, and it's a very, very big one. It's just getting started. This is, yeah, it's sell the news true, but short term because the sell the news is basically driven by the fact that most crypto people and crypto capital, the ones that basically move the needle, not the hodlers, we have a tendency to front run everything. We are front running experts. When basically an event happens, we sell the news. Why? Because we front run it. How do you can tell we've been front running it? You can easily tell this by looking at funding metrics that basically funding metrics or, or, or open interest metrics that basically tell you about the market positioning. So addressing what you were talking about, about the grayscale flows, uh, grayscale flows are very real. They've been diminishing. The, the net flows, including grayscale into ETFs have been around $800 million, which is extremely healthy. However, for some people who have a tendency to panic due to, I believe, a severe PTSD that is uh, deeply rooted in our industry for good reason, they believed that those numbers were not strong enough. Back to grayscale, if you look at the numbers, they, the grayscale flows, they started diminishing at the end of last week. Now they are 
lower than inflows, what they call the, I forget the name, the big nine or the magic nine, and, you know, you know, it's, it's like <laughs> TriFi people love to put fancy names into things like, you know, the Magnificent Seven, uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the new nine, I forgot the name they use for the nine ETFs, right? Mm -hmm. But they're lower now. And um, grayscale outflows should continue regardless. They're not done. There is a lot of bankrupt states that still need to exit. But the point there, what many people fail to see is that this is just one part of the equation. There is the other part, which is actual inflows. So that being said, uh, right now, if you look at the market, what you're going to see is uh, very healthy dynamics. Again, grayscale flows diminishing. You're going to see spot leading perps, not the other way around. The other way around is unsustainable. When spot is leading perps, that means we are in a good place. And uh, thirdly, a, a good way to keep an eye on uh, basically what's happening with the ETFs is they use Coinbase. Coinbase is their custodian, right? So they're settling in Coinbase. So you can use mm -hmm. the Coinbase premium or discount relative to the rest of the market. Usually we use mm -hmm. Binance as a measure of basically how healthy the market is. When there's a discount, it means that people are dumping on Coinbase. So in, in this case, now with ETFs, it's like ETFs are dumping on Coinbase. Now it's it's the other way around. I very much like your, your take on that Bitcoin and digital assets are kind of a, a retail-driven asset class. And obviously, like we agree very much that the ETF is also, with a long-term perspective, a major step into the right direction. So you also mentioned we see strong parallels to gold when we compare the, the gold ETF launch with, with the Bitcoin ETF launch. I checked that the magnitude of inflows very much resembles already what we saw with gold, with the difference that Bitcoin also comes with an inelastic supply property. That means like regardless of demand spikes, you can't just produce more Bitcoin. So now I'm keen to know with the gold ETF enabling gold to thrive and mature, um, do you think like similar dynamics apply to Bitcoin and the industry in general? And on top of that, sorry for the long question, what is your estimated long-term price impact? So on, on price, I tend to ignore analysis that give me a long-term price target because this, mm -hmm. these analyses are extremely subjective. I try to step away from bigger picture analysis that actually gives me a number because that number, in my experience, what usually does is cap your upside. Uh, prices mm -hmm. tend to run way, way beyond what you're thinking, mm -hmm. what we are thinking, especially in asset classes with a trend unlike Forex, it makes sense to basically remove the price target. Otherwise that price target may, may may fool us into believing we know more than the market, which we usually do not know more mm -hmm. than the market. So just, just let it ride. Um, on the gold comparison, well, two things. One is like, well, let me play uh, briefly devil's advocate. Most Bitcoin is not circulating. The price setters are actually the people, the traders, right? It's, it's not the hodlers. They, they, what they do is they, they accentuate uh, fluctuations just by basically by, by withdrawing liquidity from the market. 
But the point is, given that most Bitcoin is actually not circulating, this means that actual supply would and will increase with the with increasing prices. So uh, in in the in the midterm, like like the, the fact that Bitcoin has limited supply is good for the narrative. It's a very good narrative. And it's good for the long term, but in, in the mid to short term, it doesn't matter because higher prices drive increased supply, period. Another point there on gold that is, is worth mentioning is the inception of the gold ETF. It lined up perfectly with a weakening US dollar. People generally don't talk about it, but the, the dollar started trading very poorly right after the, the gold uh, ETF, and that lasted for a couple of years. So one could argue and one could analyze, and I would love to see this analysis, like, like this is something I would love to see. I haven't seen it, is any kind of analysis to basically isolate the different variables that actually drove gold higher. It was not just mm -hmm. ETF. There was way more than that. Furthermore, on, on gold and the, the gold comparison, I firmly believe now, this is, by the way, a belief that I developed in the last few years, that Bitcoin will surpass gold. Bitcoin has to surpass gold. It's a better asset. You know, all around, it's just a superior asset that accomplishes mostly the same thing. Store of value. Okay, gold has an industrial component. 10% of, of gold demand is for industrial uses. 10% is nothing. So uh, at the end, these are comparable assets and uh, in, in, a, in a digital world where we are and where we're going more and more with the passing of time. And uh, with uh, aging population as boomers, as we, as we now call them uh, endearingly, sadly pass away and uh, new generations come forth that they are born in a digital era, they will favor Bitcoin over gold. It's just, uh, it's as crystal as, crystal as the, the, the blue skies, right? Yep. So uh, I, I believe that Bitcoin has a lot of catch up to do. So that's something else on the, so and again, on the flip side, on the positive side now, uh, the ETF is not comparable because gold was already a mature asset at the time of inception of the ETF. Bitcoin is not. Most people don't talk about Bitcoin. Like, yeah, we talk a yep. lot, people write about it, but the reality is the, the great majority of the world Across social classes, it's not just a rich thing or middle class thing. Don't talk about Bitcoin. They read about it every now and then because somebody writes about it and now they know what it is. But they're not thinking about it and uh, they, don't, they don't own any. So there is a lot of catch up to do. That's why I think the upside is so large. It's, it's so large and I don't want to think about it. Yeah, it can be a lot of fun actually arguing where Bitcoin should go. And I get this question a lot. And, and years ago, I used to like stop and run the numbers and, and put up my models or build models and come up with an answer. Uh, now my answer is, sorry, just up, up only, you know, just manage your risk in the meantime, figure it out. Just, just yeah. stay in for the ride somehow. I think that that really sheds a lot of light, but I want to maybe take an alternative view of the ETF, uh, especially with regards to the aspect of self-custody. And with the ETF, of course, that's being lost. And that's one of the primary value propositions of Bitcoin to any crypto native, uh, not your keys, not your coins. Can you shed some light on, on this point and if long-term investors should be more cautious when investing in Bitcoin over the long term? 
Uh, well, what you said is very true, and uh, I feel identified, but uh, I think it only applies to a very small minority of potential investors. You know, the ones like like myself, and uh, quite likely, um, I mean, I don't know you enough to know this, but I would presume that probabilistically you are very similar to myself in your views about not your keys, not your coins, right? Yeah. But we are a minority. We're a tiny minority, and we will forever be, I believe, a tiny minority. Most people don't mm -hmm. care about that. Most people are, are very happy having their assets in their banks. Most people are very happy giving their privacy away for free or for some benefits, but giving it away. Even even uh, uh, crypto people give our privacy away to, to Twitter, now X, right? Uh, yeah, you can be anonymous, but they're still mapping you. Mm. So uh, most people, the great majority does not even think about Google having access to their data and using mm. it for targeted ads. Or uh, the great majority of people don't use a VPN, even though it's so easy to use it. And they think, oh, I have nothing to hide. And that's mm. not the point, of course. It's mm. like you're that's giving your privacy away for nothing to people mm. who you do not know that they can use that data to basically know exactly what you are and your behavior. But the majority does not care. So it's the same that's thing right. on, on uh, back to the Bitcoin ETF is most people are perfectly happy with uh, a custodian that happens to be Coinbase in most cases to hold their keys. And, and by the way, Coinbase is a crypto native industry. So we could argue that those uh, buying uh, into ETFs, they're in good hands. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of things to complain about Coinbase, about their fees, about their they listing shit. Um, and uh, I mean, some shit is good, some shit is very bad, but they're still one of us. You know, if, if we were not for Coinbase, many of us would not be here. So we should be very thankful, I think, to Brian Armstrong uh, rather than attack them. And uh, yeah, one, one other thing is there are Bitcoiners actually that they don't want the stress of holding their coins because they're concerned about getting hacked or they're concerned about the wrench attack or they basically literally put a wrench up your, you know, and uh, they take your coins and it happens and people do get killed for that. Not many, but it happens. So it has a benefit uh, knowing that you cannot get dropped of your Bitcoin because it's being held at, at, a, at, at a Coinbase and to get out of it, basically, that you can't. It cannot be taken away from you because uh, to remove money from, from an ETF in this case, they would need to basically sell your position, close your position on your broker, and then from the broker transfer to a bank account in your name only. This takes time and there's so many hurdles in between. So uh, it has its benefits and, and uh, I, I haven't seen data on this, but I believe that actually there's quite a few people that, that have, uh, have sold their spot Bitcoin and bought the ETF for security reasons. And they're happy to pay 25 bips or 30 bips for 0.25% uh, for the service. No, definitely. Um, that, that, that is true. I think once you uh, supersede a certain threshold in terms of uh, AUM, 
it starts to become you know a lot uh, more comforting to know that your assets are being held with somebody that is regulated and also somebody that is trusted right um, there are consequences and I think um, that also gives you peace of mind as an investor but that also leads me now you know into um, the second part which is actually more around the macro environment and you know uh, someone with your experience I think I'm very excited to learn uh, about your take on this so you know just maybe to kick off um, the upcoming FOMC announcement this week is is really going to think uh, be quite exciting for the market and I think we'll see some reactions uh, in in the charts for sure uh, there's a 46 probability that uh, they will cut in March but given that we have uh, you know the labor market really hasn't moved uh, it's appeared rather strong um, and then in the long term we'll have AI and its effect on the market plus we have some global politics uh, playing out in the Middle East and uh, as well as here in Europe do you have a strong position on global macro at the moment uh, from your previous position in June last year um, and then following which I'll I'll just tweak you on short-term views and then and then medium-term views yeah, sure. Uh, I, I think the only thing that changes positioning. Okay. So uh, its uh, position is is now is uh, slightly stretched. You could argue uh, short term mm-hmm. players, and uh, this is reflected. There's no alpha there. This is reflected in the charts. Uh, that being said, uh, nothing much else has changed aside of China, finally turning dovish. Um, okay. Other things are, are mostly the same. We can go into the minutiae, but they're mostly the same. And, and something, the way I approached 2024 was actually the same I approached, same way I approached 2023. Consensus was bearish recession. Same analysis, inverted yield curve, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. So uh, I was right and they paid off um, to take the other side in 23. I'm thinking the same way for 24. There is some things that are going to be happening that are very, very positive. The Fed has started talking about basically winding down uh, quantitative tightening. I'm going by what they say. It's, it's um, at, at this point, I am going by the fact that basically the Fed has been very consistent since they realized they've effed up mm-hmm. in uh, 2021. And uh, they flipped hawkish. They've been extremely on point with their own views. So I'm going but with what the Fed is saying, and they're already talking about unwinding QT. So we have inflation coming down. We have interest rates that are going to start coming down. The, the issue on interest rates is kind of similar to what I was talking about positioning. As, as uh, uh, you were saying, uh, there is a forty percent probability of, of cuts by of the first cut by March twenty twenty four by March, um, which is not what the Fed is talking about. The Fed has been basically hinting at June, starting in June. So the the market is getting ahead of itself. The market has uh, up to three cuts priced by June, and it has uh, at about seventy five percent probability. Uh, we need to look at the the aggregate, but I think it's if I recall correctly, it's about seventy five eighty percent probability of five cuts by mm-hmm. end of year. And the Fed has been signaling, or it's signaled, not has been signaling, it's signaled three cuts. So either the Fed is right or the market is right. I think that it's most likely that the Fed is right. What that basically means is at some point in likely the near future, uh, we're going to have, the way I see this, I think it's more likely to have a sharp, fast correction of say uh, 5%, something like that. 
maybe a little bit more uh, Fed-driven. So it, the correction will be driven by the Fed. Uh, it could happen on uh, could happen tomorrow. I don't I don't expect anything happening tomorrow. Uh, the risk mainly comes on the dot plot, basically the Fed's projections of various things out in the future. In this case, uh, interest rates. Um, that's where the risk comes from, I think. So uh, I think the most likely time for uh, the Fed to to basically say you guys are wrong, you're, you're too dovish, you're too bullish, is in March. Okay. Um, what else there? Um, I, yeah. Also, like just just to say, like basically, it, it the dot plot is so important. It was the dot plot that basically it the Fed did a hundred eighty degree change on the dot plot in December versus September. That was the infamous Fed pivot that a, a very large chunk of the market failed to see because of uh, um, because of biases, basically, okay. uh, recency bias, etc. No, I think that's very interesting. I mean, it's it's also a rather different uh, approach to some of the others, um, you know, that you that you can follow on on, on YouTube and on Twitter, um, such as uh, Henrik Zerbeck, who basically is talking a little bit more about uh, there actually being a recession this year um, and saying that's probably going to happen maybe a little bit later in the year. Um, looking at you know things like the conference index, for example. May I ask um, what's his handle? Um, it's it's Henrik Zerbeck, uh, I believe. Yeah. It's a very large account, like 600, like a massive account, right? It, it's relatively large. Yes, that's true. Yeah. That's I, true. I, if I recall correctly, uh, he's always bearish. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm, you yeah. Watch out there. So some people have strong biases. I'm, by the way, I, I acknowledge my bias is generally bullish. I used to go with an approach <laughs> of unbiased. Okay. And uh, at some point in, in my life, I realized that that's a mistake because if, if assets are generally going up, your bias should be up, not neutral. Yes. How do you assess your own bias, by the way? How do, how what? How does one assess one's own bias? You know, do you like maybe invert the oh. chart? I mean, that, that's one, <laughs> one tool. <laughs> uh, uh, well, uh, first is self, self-awareness, right? But uh, when it comes to, to, to charts, uh, uh, we can just strap a, a, a put a linear regression on a chart or or moving averages. There's so many ways to measure a trend and the strength of a trend. So based on that, I mean, a, a very good approach. Stocks just make it easy, and crypto makes it not as easy because of the volatility. But it's it's uh, for the longer term people, which I recommend, and investors, anybody who is who is trying to like weed out the noise. Uh, we put a trend, we zoom out, and uh, we see, okay, this is, we want to be long here, so let's use counter trend moves, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, for, for basically putting positions against the major trend. Uh, specifically, this is maybe something very basic for much of the audience, but simply uh, change the time frame on, uh, on the charts or uh, change the input for the length of the moving averages being used. Uh, and uh, by by doing that, we can we can we can visualize and assess uh, different trends in different time frames. So what we want to try to trade and what we use as counter trend to to trade or manage risk or if we're running leverage becomes very important. But yeah, no, nice. Um, so I have another question, and maybe I'm interested to know from you if you if we take 
um, COVID, right? COVID typically lasted like two months, right? So I wouldn't necessarily deem it a systemic financial recession uh, that occurred during COVID. It's more of like a, a shock moment with a um, with a reaction that was just um, a little bit overreaching, all right? Um, and so if that's not necessarily deemed a, a financial recession, would you agree then that actually Bitcoin and crypto has not been stress tested in a financial recession up until? Well, I disagree with the premise okay. because I think it was a financial recession. And uh, the only reason uh, we came out of it so fast is because the Fed and, and other central banks and governments took uh, extraordinary measures. Because mm -hmm. even though the panic was not justified, okay. not, not, not justified by reality and substance, the panic was real. Yeah. And um, and the future is path dependent, prices are path dependent. So mm -hmm. if uh, the Fed, I'm going to talk about the Fed because it was the main actor, but there were so many actors. If the Fed had not stepped, the Fed has not stepped in and dramatically impact the path of prices, mm -hmm. we would have had largest financial crisis in history, quite likely bigger than 29, uh, because mm. uh, the economy stopped, the world stopped. Yeah, um, I've been very vocal, by the way, that uh, that was a mistake from the beginning, from 2020, people wouldn't follow me, get very upset. Um, uh, we exaggerated, the world uh, went overboard, we did too much. Um, mm. And it was basically driven by panic. So uh, the way it was, was typical herd behavior. The, the, the masses panicked, the politicians panicked because the masses panicked and that generated a negative feedback loop that basically fed back to the masses and also generated this very sad uh, separation, um, political separation between those who uh, saw COVID as the end of the world and uh, something to be massively scared about and we're going to die, et cetera, to those who actually took exactly the other way and said, this is nonsense. And by the way, the guys who said nonsense were mostly right, but uh, it's not binary. There's a spectrum in between. Uh, I'd say, like my personal opinion, that we were more like on the 75% towards the nonsense side, but COVID was was real. There is like, for example, sorry, I'm going off, off, off the branch here. Um, uh, age of expectancy went down for the first time in a century because of COVID. It was a real thing. So those who mm. say it's nothing, yeah. they're wrong. It was important, yeah. but the panic was not justified. It was not as bad. And and it was the first time in history where basically people, we quarantined the healthy, mm. not the sick. It, it's insane. Uh, there's no, so no, many things that could have been done to make things uh, better. Like economic incentives were not right and not put in place to basically generate the right kind of behavior, and uh, absolutely. And we have to be thankful for that because thanks to that, this because of how how politicians and central bankers panicked, we had this insane liquidity injection that gave uh, risk assets and Bitcoin. It 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 transformed Bitcoin for the first time in history into a risk asset, and mm -hmm. uh, it sent us to the moon, right? Yes. And uh, yeah. we all did very well thanks to that. So, more QV. Yeah, fair take. Hey, Alex, I, I would like to dig it a little bit deeper here because, like, you recently tweeted, let me tell you, quote unquote, let me tell you why I, re I remain 
very bullish on risk assets. Now the question is, how does this uh, rather new asset class interplay with these global macro conditions? Especially because uh, like the perception of Bitcoin is kind of evolving, right? So sometimes it behaves like a risk on asset, but at the same time, it's considered to be a, a store of value or digital gold. Like, how does that make sense? Or how does well, that uh, the, work together? The way it makes sense is by changing framework and seeing it as an emerging asset class going uh, undergoing a process of adoption. So that's why correlations are so unstable. Uh, correlations are driven by flows, right? Um, something also, something interesting that, that happened on, on that front is uh, changing perceptions and flawed perceptions of what Bitcoin actually, how it behaves. For uh, almost a decade, people saw Bitcoin as basically something that responded to risk assets and would respond to Brexit and would respond to Cyprus and would respond to a uh, crisis in China and outflows and... Uh, Bitcoiners would see uh, relationships that were non-existent, all imaginary. Uh, just a, a desire to believe in something makes you actually see that desire into reality. Perception can be reality. Perception oftentimes is reality. So um, the, the actual correlation of Bitcoin with risk assets uh, until March 2020 was zero on average. It literally hovered around zero very consistently, positive, negative, very consistently. Um, there was It was not tied to uh, crisis in China or anything of that. You could also evaluate that by, by, by and, and, and uh, cripple those narratives if you cared for by looking at the China narrative, for example, by looking at uh, onshore uh, RMB Bitcoin premium uh, that uh, was not there. That being said, you could also, if, if you wanted to go in there, is it's uh, when when trying to assess correlations, it, it's valuable to not just look at a daily chart. Okay, this is a mistake that most people do. Is uh, it's it's uh, uh, for me as someone with uh, a, ma a mathematical background, it's infuriating actually when people just overlay charts and says, "Oh, look at that correlation." Assets with an upwards trend are going to be highly correlated because most of the correlation is explained by the underlying trend, which are independent from one another, but both go up. Uh, and when yeah. you when you look at the uh, when you look at correlation of changes, which is the way one should be doing, looking at correlations uh, with the exception of co-integrated assets, then you'll see that in most cases these correlations don't exist. Co-integrated yeah. assets, by the way, is assets that, that share an underlying trend, like, for example, treasury futures and treasuries. Back to your question, uh, Bitcoin became a risk on asset March 2020 uh, with COVID. And uh, it ceased to be a risk on asset on April mm -hmm. of 23, uh, oh, which okay. coincided, the correlation disappeared. Uh, this coincided with U.S. market makers exiting the market in hordes. Mm -hmm. So basically, it was regulatory driven. Right now, correlation of Bitcoin and risk asset is still very, very small. However, my personal view is that this will pick back up with the ETF. We just need the initial flows to yep. parse through 
and uh, Bitcoin is going to start trading more in tune, in line with risk assets. And when we're talking risk assets, we're usually thinking uh, the S&P 500, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, by the way, that is very bullish because the S&P 500 always goes up. So if, if, you're, if, if part of your price action is being driven and determined by something that always goes up or usually goes up, that's good if you're bullish yeah. and you're an investor. So, so yeah, that's, that's how I say it. I think it's going to be changing soon back to, to uh, being uh, strongly positively correlated. Okay. Hey, that was a very insightful and a, a great take. I, I like what you just outlined. And yeah, it's a, like correlations are a super nuanced topic and you have to be very cautious to not uh, get, get trapped in things like pseudo correlations and, and things like that. Uh, can I, can, I, can definitely... I say, Dominic, some, before you change uh, topic, this is uh, something interesting. This is something that traders of all kinds, also institutional traders, do very often, which is basically actually just, just overlay charts. Our brains, because I do it as well, it's like we're wired to try to find patterns that don't exist. We need to understand what's happening. So we, we look for explanations and we see patterns that don't exist and something that is very common for, for achieving that goal is basically start looking at different variables from monetary policy to inflation to, to uh, how spreads are working uh, to uh, you name it. There is like an infinite number of variables that we can be looking at, uh, consumer confidence, et cetera, and try to find which chart right now fits with what we're trading. Oh, it's like the light goes off. It's like, I found it. This is the answer. And, uh, it often happens that actually that, that does explain part of the action, but it's like three to 5%. That's not really the determinant thing is just a side note. I, uh, if I may add, like what is nice for us who have exposure to digital assets, like regardless of the correlation, like regardless if it uh, behaves like a exponential gold or like a, a better on, on, on tech stocks. Usually like Bitcoin and digital assets historically outperform the rest in the ma majority of, of years. So, so that's, uh, that's a nice thing to have, uh, to have in mind. Yep. Um, let's change gears a little bit now and dive into some cycle theory. Um, um, yeah, I think we touched base on it already. Like cycles are very common for most asset classes and digital assets are among that category too because it's a very rhythmic and reflexive asset class, right? Um, so based on your um, analysis framework, what do you think, where are we in the current cycle and, and which indicators do you utilize to support your assessment here? I don't use any indicators to support my assessment. I just Fair read enough. nonstop. Uh, <laughs> okay. um, I read nonstop and I talk to people nonstop uh, to, to other uh, to everybody, actually, not not just other traders, uh, and mm -hmm. and that's how I determine actually my bias. I I try to steer mm -hmm. away from indicators. Well, I'm not using indicators right now, but I used to use them for uh, basically paint a story. So if you want to tell a story, you use indicators for that. Mm -hmm. um, back to um, where we are in the cycle, I think we're coming out of. Uh, the panic part of the cycle is too soon to get bearish. Basically, the market is only now starting to accept that mm. 
recession and the end of the world and stocks crashing uh, 20 to 50% were wrong evaluations or predictions. Is yeah. we're, we're just coming out. Uh, yeah, there, yeah. Is, there is no uh, exuberance. There's, you can see short-term exuberance in some short-term metrics by, by risk takers, but there is no broad exuberance in the market yet. I think we're just 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 starting. Yeah, that that's the way I see it. I think it's too early to start getting uh, concerned. It's uh, more about uh, be concerned if you're not well positioned because asset prices are going up, and yeah. uh, the 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 cost or the uh, return on cash is going down. So if you are very risk averse or not financially savvy, and you're sitting in a ton of cash. Well. You have a very serious problem that you need to address as soon as possible. Yep. And I tell that whoever is listening, if you're sitting on a ton of cash, take the time, work a little bit less, try to break the um, the salary mentality and, and adopt an investor, risk taker, entrepreneur, can be just an investor mentality. It's, we're in a good place where most of our income is coming from asset appreciation not salary and this is even more important in this stage of the cycle yeah. where salaries stop growing relatively and yeah. assets start going down so if you are not asset rich you're poor uh you yeah. have a problem sounds like somebody uh i know <laughs> but um <laughs> sounds like to... so many people i know sadly yeah <laughs> No, that's that's it. It, it yeah. is actually unfortunate, but that's a but that's you know what. If you just look at the look at the valuation of uh, of the dollar and against gold or any hard currency, uh, it tells you the true story. And um, you're a hundred percent correct uh, on that point. And the next, I think, in the future, it's only going to be uh, hard assets and more assets, uh, not necessarily just Bitcoin, but I think um, definitely assets. Um, tangible assets in, in, in general. Um, on the idiosyncratic side of digital assets, we see rather low leverage levels and funding. So, you know, this plays perfectly into the argument that we are looking at a very rosy short-term outlook for, uh, for, for crypto this year in 24. And, um, you know, your, your, your view is definitely that what we've seen last year in terms of the bullish outlook is definitely going to continue now in 24. Um, and I think it's, very highly possible we can see um, all new highs in in crypto, but also uh, in the stock market as well. Do you potentially see any um, looming black swan events, you know, that just come from either inside the crypto industry or potentially even from the outside, um, whether it might be geopolitics, whether it might be something we may have overlooked? Are there any black swans in your view? Um, well, by, by definition, we are always overlooking black swans, right? Mm. Um, that same, like I do as well. Uh, we all by do. By definition, sure. By definition. Yeah. Um, that being said, on, on the black swan side, uh, black swans usually cost people money because they're concerned about black swans and they rarely ever happen. And when they happen, they're so big that they give you as everyone, whoever is a risk taker, they give enough time to react and protect our assets. So generally, I think worrying about black swans is EV negative. The expected value is negative. Uh, 
It's uh, this can be very tricky because we like to consume information, and uh, negative information has a tendency to attract us uh, much more, which basically drives people to create more negative information, which we consume more, and we pump it up on the algos, and we get this loop, and we are like bombarded all the time, but by very negative things. Uh, so. Uh, that's usually costly. It's very good for engagement if you're in the business of, of clicks. Uh, that being said, the two black swans that I would see are, uh, the first one is a re-emergence or a new pandemic. Um, I think it makes sense to have a new pandemic at some point in, in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. I don't know when it's going to happen. I have absolutely no alpha, no edge there, but it makes sense for that to happen again. Uh, the secondly is basically China invading or attempting to invade Taiwan. Uh, it seems likely probability over 50% that that would happen in the next 20 years. If that happens, we will have the time. We need to sell everything mm. and find things to short. Yeah, of course, you can play some relative values or some things are going to go up. But the point is, it would be so big that we need mm. to run um uh, other things um what's happening right now in korea for example korea just declared uh, the um uh, just declared south korea just they just amended their constitution and they declare south korea a mortal enemy that, that just happened it's a departure from their prior uh, uh intent or uh, uh express intent of uh eventually reunifying the experts on the field are talking about how this could be an effort by China to push the US to get distracted and, and open up space for them to go after Taiwan. That's another potential black swan, basically, uh, war in Korea. Um, mm. I'm not trading this. Uh, this is just things I read. I talk about it. Um, if this gets big and bad, uh, it could definitely affect risk premiums and uh, definitely as, uh, affect uh, stocks. Uh, but I'm not trading it. Um, uh, yeah, what I else? it's kind of difficult to trade. Um, absolutely. No doubt. I mean, I think you can, but once once the trigger, it's like the Ukraine-Russia invasion. Uh, mm -hmm. Like there was no trade until a month before. And even though it, it was years mm -hmm in the making years in the making yep, and yep. and it, it it picked up very strongly back in december uh early december of uh, 22 but it was untradeable until uh two to four weeks before the invasion yep, so yep. just ignore it that's how i see it mm -hmm. i also think like back then like markets didn't really price something like that in as you said like that's why they are called black swans Let's just hope none of this will materialize in the in the future. And I want to touch base uh, on what you said that it's kind of consensus that we get a recession. And based on that, probably a lot of people are sidelined or like you frame it, not really asset rich. So that would also kind of imply if they start to realize that the volatility, the upside volatility will be rather high. So. What I'm trying to get at is um, that voices within our industry are getting a, a little bit more loud around the potential of a so-called left-translated cycle. Um, could you briefly outline for our audience 
what is a left translated cycle and what are the odds and repercussions of, of such a left translated cycle? To, to be honest, it's the first time I hear the term left translated cycle. I, oh, okay. I believe I know who you're talking about, people with strong influence in the market uh, on, on Bitcoin, but it's the first time I, I read that term, or if I read it, I, I glimpsed very fast. So what is the left, uh, well, what, <laughs> what is okay, it? Okay, then, yeah. then I take that and you will then follow up and, and give us your uh, opinion on, yeah. on the odds of such a left translated cycle. So what it is, is basically like that um, uh, a certain setup occurs and like that we might observe uh, as of now that the market is just running too hot too fast and in the current setup that might be based on the etfs with big flows coming in um, that then like hits a very major supply constraint in bitcoin that you outlined before plus many people that are still kind of on, on the risk averse side and are not accordingly allocated uh, with, with, their, with their dollars. So what that would, would kind of mean is that we see some, some kind of blow off top within the next couple of months and then afterwards the bull market is over. So it would just mean that we are translating our cycle uh, to an earlier phase, maybe to 24. Do you think that's a possibility or is that uh, I think it's unlikely. Is, uh, okay. I think it's, it's definitely a possibility. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's very unlikely. Uh, when it comes to blow off top, Bitcoin already had a blow off top textbook, right? On the uh, ETF launch. Um, mm -hmm. True. And uh, we are basically retracing the whole move, the arguments for a continued downside with a few exceptions. Most of those arguments came the low 40s, uh, 40K, 40,000 for Bitcoin. Uh, we just dropped. We, we barely even got into the 38s and we're already up, up to 43, 44 already. Um, so uh, those views, which were mostly, uh, uh, from what I've seen, tactical views, they've already been proven wrong. Yep. Um, can we have another blow off top? Absolutely. I, I, I find it hard to see uh, another blow off top uh, in, uh, in, in this year, uh, in, in Bitcoin, because, uh, the public is not yet, the, not yet here. There's no euphoria. Yeah. It's like the True. euphoria around the ETF. It was caused by insiders. Yeah. So, uh, I, I find it hard to, to ambition a blow off top in 24, uh, in crypto in stocks could happen, could, could definitely happen, but I don't know. Yeah. It's let's see, it's, uh, we still. For that to happen, uh, the the Fed will need to get very very dovish, and uh, in against the backdrop of uh, a soft landing rather than a hard landing. This is something, by the way, that has been usually that it's tricked people out of their longs or out of the market entirely. Is this belief that the Fed going dovish, the pivot is actually bad for risk assets, and that is only true against a backdrop of a, a strong recession or hard landing. Otherwise it's not true. Yep. So uh, it all really, it, it's all really around, uh, it, we're going to see a hard landing or not. Uh, the data seems to indicate at, at, at present that we won't be seeing a hard landing and that the Fed has been actually for once right. That's my outlook. My outlook is soft landing, diminishing inflation, 
we can have a, a few snafus here and there because of the market getting ahead of themselves. Or for example, in the Middle East, there was a, for example, a ship that just got hit by a drone in the Red Sea. So mm -hmm. now traders are announcing and talking about uh, halting Red Sea transit that could escalate. They could drive oil prices up. Uh, yeah, there, there, bad things can happen, but it's not my base case scenario. And I think it's the right approach. When the perceived upside is so, so large, the way to manage these short-term things should be different than when we are highly uncertain about the future. I think those calls for a large correction are wrong. And I'd be very surprised if Bitcoin trades 30K uh, this year. Yeah, I wouldn't mind, to be honest. <laughs> I wouldn't mind. <laughs> Ah, yeah, we can buy yeah. more than yeah. now, true. Yeah. I don't want to buy more. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very true, yeah. So I think um, for me, I would like to maybe look at something a little bit more generic and, um, and also a little bit more relatable. If you consider that risk on assets are pretty much correlating with global liquidity conditions and the money supply, it's actually really interesting to see that there is a strong correlation between the election years, liquidity cycles, and then the halving cycles. And, you know, what's the story behind Satoshi's choice here? Uh, and what is your take on the relationship um, and, and, and that correlation with uh, election cycles, liquidity cycles, and the halving? Well, that's something that just became a thing about uh, a week ago, right? Uh, I think it's mostly coincidental. Two things that matter in the same direction, coincidentally, they're both important. Uh, I don't think the halving has been a meme. This is something that people are now talking about it because of that chart that shows basically how uh, BTC supply has been moving in line and, and, and the price as well with liquidity. Uh, that being said, I do think that the halving, uh, uh, the further along we go towards the future, the halving will become a meme because it's, mm -hmm. it's sim simple math. The impact of the halving yeah. diminishes it gets cut in half every four years, right? No, absolutely. You know, thank you for the feedback. I think it's absolutely fair. Um, and yeah, like you said, you know, we're always looking for patterns, right? Uh, sometimes they make sense, sometimes they don't. Um, so we have to also assess uh, whether they actually have a serious impact or not. But uh, yeah, no, thank you. So uh, I think as we inch closer to the end of, of this great episode, it would make sense to kind of shed some light of digital assets outside of Bitcoin. What do you think about Ethereum and ETH the asset as of now? Because all eyes were on Bitcoin for months now, maybe even more than a year. Mm. How do you assess ETH here and what are potential external and internal catalysts for ETH uh, and its performance outlook? Um, so first of all, I, I love ETH. You know, I use ETH, uh, it's, it's great. <laughs> Now, right that, that being said, ETH uh, is a slow horse. It's relatively older tech. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's a fact. It's the first, right? The, it's yeah. the first uh, blockchain with smart contracts. All, all, all of us, we already hold ETH. So it's harder for ETH to move. This does not mean bearish. It means bearish relative to other assets. For ETH to speed up, and not be a slow horse, it needs the ETF narrative. And uh, the ETF narrative is not guaranteed. It's, it's uh, highly uncertain. Like the, the Bloomberg guys, who are the guys who've been uh, uh, driving uh, the uh, the ETF narrative for Bitcoin very successfully and hats off to them. 
uh, they're pinning the probability of an ETF by May of 60%. Uh, the way I see that is twofold. On, on one hand is, I think it's overly optimistic because the way I see it is, it's highly unlikely that we will have an ETF for as long as Gensler is the chair of the SEC. He's been very, very clear about it. Uh, I think 25 is more likely because uh, I think Trump will win. Trump winning quite likely means Gensler stepping aside, which opens up the door for an ETH ETF and then all sorts of altcoin ETFs. Uh, that being said, I think the market is going to increase the probability of approval. So at some point in the next uh, few months, if gonna heat up again and uh, dramatically overperform Bitcoin. And the second driver for driving uh, ETH and, and uh, uh, helping it not being a slow horse is uh, Eigenlayer. Eigenlayer is uh, the first part of the, eigen of, of the Eigenlayer move already happened. It's, it's mm. basically people buying ETH to stake, to then restake on Eigenlayer or through other, these other mechanisms, but basically to uh, get eigenlayer points that eventually get converted into tokens. And uh, the, uh, the eigenlayer right now on the secondary market is trading at 10 billion. Uh, if I remember correctly, the, uh, the valuation back in uh, May, June was 600 million. I may be wrong on this. I wouldn't check my, my emails, but comes close. Yeah. Uh, it's so it's, it's up a lot and the market is expecting this to actually, we're going to be seeing 20 billion valuation by the time when eigenlayer goes live. That brings all this money into ETH holders, and a large chunk of that would quite likely flow into ETH itself. Just like, for example, Solana right now is doing very well this week because tomorrow there is one of the largest airdrops in history of crypto, which is Jupiter. Uh, and the market is naturally and rationally expecting that to pump Sol. Uh, that being said, uh, and to wrap that part up on, on ETH is, I think ETH has too much competition now. There's way too many other chains. These chains compete with ETH. They don't compete with Bitcoin. So uh, examples, Monad is coming out in uh, quite likely late uh, H2 uh, Monad. Yep. I expect yep. Monad to be absolutely massive. I fully uh, agree. Yeah, it's going to be massive. Eclipse is coming out. Scroll is out. It's doing extremely well, and somehow it's it's doing extremely well, and it's it's outside of the uh, perception of the of yep. the of the crypto narrative, you know. Uh, Core, yep. uh, another one. Core DAO. It's another massive uh, layer one. This one is a layer one, not layer two. Uh, yep. That yep. has absolutely massive number of holders uh, and uh, a lot of holders in uh, in emerging markets. There's there is so many chains out there. You have Aztec, for example, coming out in Q1, 25. Um, yeah, yeah. And then all the other ones that, that, you know, we have Say, we have ING, we have uh, Sui, Aptos. Uh, there is there is quite a few. And then on top of that, we have all the Bitcoin layer twos and all the ordinals uh, movement, which uh, I yeah, think yeah. is going to remain being very big. This is something interesting happening there, which is new Asian money is flowing into Bitcoin layer twos. So it's kind mm -hmm. of the way to think about it is ETH 
is a, a second, third generation asset that everybody in the West already holds. We already made our money. So we are attached mm -hmm. to it. We protect it. We shield it. We pitch it. The new guys, they don't want to buy our bags. Yeah. They want new bags. They want new communities. They also want to get rich. So you uh, that, anything. Yeah, that's why ETH, they want to bet on, uh, on, on, on newer, exactly. So ETH is not the answer there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that's how I see ETH. That was uh, very insightful. I didn't know that you are so so deep in the in, in the crypto crypto native uh, space as well. Otherwise, I think I would have put more emphasis on on content around that. But um, I also feel um, yeah, just to consolidate what you said, I think I agree on on the majority of points. Like there are basically like two verticals. The one is kind of the the external vertical. So is there an ETF coming? Because if, if, if we get an ETH ETF, it will be very big, given the relative size of uh, Ethereum compared to Bitcoin. Massive. And it's, it's like an, a kind of an easy sell. You have that, that ESG thing going uh, for ETH. Then you have kind of uh, a deflationary cash flow asset, which is nice to sell. So everybody that, um, that offers an ETH ETF will at some point also like profit off of these uh, kind of staking rewards. And then the second vertical kind of what you outlined is within the tech stack, like, let's say a lot of interesting developments. I fully agree the competition is major, but we had that last cycle already, if you remember, um, with all the Ethereum killers coming up, such as Avalanche and, and the like. So um, I'm very keen to see how the modular narrative plays out against the, this integrated narrative that kind of Solana and, and Monad and so forth are, are chasing. Because for, for both camps, there are like very um, good arguments to make. I feel both are very important uh, and I'm happy to monitor what happens. And lastly, uh, we also um, very closely monitor Eigenlayer, and we fully agree that this will be like one of the most transformative things, maybe the biggest thing after the launch of Ethereum that we uh, witnessed uh, within our rather new asset class. No, awesome. Thank you. Um, I can't uh, disagree with any of the points. As you said, you know, Dominic, um, I also didn't, we didn't know Alex was so deep on the crypto native side. And uh, I think we can definitely have another podcast just to talk sure. about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just as we approach uh, the end of the uh, of the podcast, you know, within within the digital asset space, um, we, we've spoken so much about digital assets. Maybe you can share with us a little bit about what other sectors or assets that you like to focus or invest in. Is it commodities? Is it just stocks from a diversification perspective? Where 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 you place um, your focus? It's my my liquid uh, book right now is 90% crypto, uh, 10% awesome. uh, AI stocks. Very nice. Um, AI stocks. Okay. Yeah. That's exciting. And it's, it's, it's not, ex it's not that exciting as I, I, I just, uh, I barely trade those. I just hold them. Uh, they're like big names. It's no alpha. It's okay. Nvidia and Microsoft, uh, mainly. Um, so it's, uh, I'm not a good person to like, I, I can go over how to construct a very well diversified portfolio to, to basically suit different, uh, uh, desires and, and, uh, even though that would be financial advice, but I can do it, but it's, it's not, what I do is not really applicable to most people. 
I'm at the very end of the risk-taking spectrum. Uh, I'm an extreme risk-taker. So mm. uh, I, my alpha is mostly in crypto, and I love crypto. It makes me happy aside of making me money. Yeah. So uh, it keeps me, nice. uh, makes me wake up every day uh, wanting to work. So uh, yeah. nice. I'm mostly crypto, and then I have real estate. You could say it's diversification, but it's not really... Uh, it's more for family reasons, let's put it that way. If I would be uh, absolutely alone in the world, I would have absolutely no real estate. It's a very bad investment. If you are a good risk taker, real estate is a bad investment. I agree with you there, but it's completely balanced on the other side for, you know, uh, the very simple reason of family that you have, that you have property, but which is um, not maybe the greatest investment, but it's, it's very important at least that you don't... Uh, have to worry yeah. about uh, it going yeah. away or someone taking it away or saying ciao um it's stable in that sense so um no that's that that makes perfect sense so maybe last but not least what are your top three hottest takes for 2024 just be bold i think we're yeah. going to be seeing all-time highs this year uh, at least bitcoin i think that sol solana is absolutely massive and uh, it's underpriced mm. relative to eth what's happening in solana is absolutely incredible and i think everybody should be long sol it's the perfect chain for retail restaking let me let me uh quantify this uh you get uh, with uh, meme coin with hat right yes. uh, the dog with a little hat dog uh, with is trading uh, well, I haven't checked in a few days but uh, it's is trading is doing about 40 50 million dollars in uh, daily trading volume daily every day that's, that's sure. they're basically making 100k a day on fees um, <laughs> that's that's all retail and uh, you you turn around and you go to eth and uh, there is not a single meme coin on the eth side doing more than 3 million dollars a day is wow. product market fit. The, mm. the, the retail digens, Solana is perked for them. ETH is absolutely the opposite. And then, okay, there are so many other chains, but this is the thing. There's only two real chains with smart contracts that right now have uh, an, a strong native community. They're ETH and Solana, nothing else. Everything else as of now is, is dominated by hot, hot money. ETH and Sol, they have natives that live there. So there's some people in Seoul that they don't know anything outside Seoul. Mm. So uh, then back to Seoul, there's a lot of very good applications that uh, that don't exist on ETH um, uh, because of speed and, and how cheap it is. Like, for example, HiveMapper, right? Um, I think there's going to be so much more innovation happening in Seoul that cannot happen in ETH. Uh, another one is... Um, I still think the valuations, if, if you're really bullish as I am, the optimal path is to be investing as much as possible rather than trading, uh, especially given that uh, valuations in crypto have not yet adjusted from 2023 levels or have barely adjusted. Uh, mm. Beyond that, you also have a set of very, very strong uh, builders and founders that have been basically grinding through the bear market so it's high caliber teams building good products. Uh, another one, uh, for example, at Solana one, Parcel, uh, it's a, a platform that enables uh, trading of real estate. Um, and uh, mm. it's something that Sol makes it happen. It's, it's 
very valuable and it's just getting started. Um, I, love your, I love your I love your comment on on the positives of Solana and how you can have innovation on Solana, but you can't have it on ETH, and that's purely for like structural reasons. Um, yep. And and it just just distinguishes the two assets completely. And then also to come back and say, actually, you know, ETH has so much competition, and that's also a fact. Um, you know, the Bitcoin Suisse uh, global crypto taxonomy uh, will show you exactly how many participants there are in the smart contract platform sector. Um, and so it's it's really ha- it's really nice to see how your framework fits so well into a lot of the the research content uh, that our research team and, and Dominic has produced. So. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, I really like it. Uh, l- likewise, thank you so much. I mean, uh, honored to be uh, your f- first guest, uh, 100%. And, and to the audience, uh, thank you. Disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast pertaining to Bitcoin Suez Ag and its group companies together Bitcoin Suez is for general informational purposes only and should not be considered exhaustive and does not imply any elements of a pre-contractual or contractual relationship nor any offering. This podcast does not take into account, nor does it provide any tax, legal or investment advice or opinion regarding the specific investment objectives or financial situation of any person. While the information is believed to be accurate and reliable, Bitcoin Suisse and its agents, advisors, directors, officers, employees and shareholders make no representation or warranties, expressed or implied, as to the accuracy of such information, and Bitcoin Suisse expressly disclaims any and all liability that may be based on such information or errors or omissions thereof. Bitcoin Suisse reserves the right to amend or replace the information contained herein, in part or entirely, at any time, and undertakes no obligation to provide the recipient with access to the amended information or to notify the recipient hereof. The information provided is not intended for use by or distribution to any individual or legal entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution, publication or use would be contrary to the law or regulatory provisions or in which Bitcoin Suez does not hold the necessary registration approval, authorization, or license, in particular in the United States of America, including its territories and possessions. Except as otherwise provided by Bitcoin Suisse, it is not allowed to modify, copy, distribute, transmit, display, reproduce, publish, license, or otherwise use any content for resale, distribution, marketing of products or services, or other commercial uses. Bitcoin Suisse 2024